Oh, good morning. My name is Roger Cecil. Uh, my family has gone to Northview for many years. Uh, I have four kids. My wife and I have four kids. Um, <laughs> the, younger, the youngest two are graduating uh, from high school this year, so we have some big life changes coming, and um, in some ways looking forward to it. In other ways, I, I'm, it's just unknown. So uh, we also are in a small group, community group on Sunday nights, and that's been a really rich part of our uh, time here at Northview as well. So join me in uh, reading the scripture. It's from Psalm 67. And it says, may God be merciful and bless us. May his face smile with favor on us. May your ways be known throughout the earth, your saving power among people everywhere. May the nations praise you, O God. Yes, may the nations praise you. Let the whole world sing for joy because you govern the nations with justice and guide the people of the whole world. May the nations praise you, O God. Yes, may all the nations praise you. Then the earth will yield its harvests, and God, our God, will richly bless us. Yes, God will bless us, and people all over the world will fear him. My name is James. If you're here for the first time, one of the pastors, and it's a joy to have you guys with us today as we enter into a, a new series heading this morning. And what a beautiful time of the year. We've spent the last few days out camping with the family, enjoying the weather, which has been incredible, seeing the sun out, the kids being outside. Um, and we took a giant leap of faith in the last few weeks and picked up a couple used air conditioners for the house. And I say leap of faith, we're hoping we get to use them. Uh, we're hoping we'll have that kind of summer here. For those who know, we've recently just moved here from overseas, and um, we, are, uh, we are used to sun all the time. And so uh, Seattle is a... Uh, is to come back to this place is a, a getting used to again to this strange weather phenomenons we have but what is most amazing right now is the end of the seattle hibernation season is over and so neighbors are coming out of their of their holes and out of their homes and it's been a beautiful thing to see neighbors again and it's a chance for us to remember their names or to learn them if we haven't seen them in the last six months um, there's a few that we have not even witnessed somehow in the last six months, despite the fact we're out all the time. And we've just had a, a new neighbor move in that's lived there, I think, three weeks, and no one has seen them yet. Um, and so we are, again, hoping that this is a time that not only do we get to meet people, our house is being filled with the sound of all the neighbor's kids as we try to make our house like a, a place for all the neighborhood kids to hang out. Uh, but it is a wonderful time to remember that God has called us to our neighbors when we don't see them most of the year, but this is a time to rebuild those relationships that will last into the hibernation months as well. And uh, the last six months, we've been looking at this series in Ephesians called Live and Love Like Jesus. And right now we're transitioning to a new one over the next few weeks called Hashtag Blessed. Uh, and, and today's sermon is called Blessed to Be a Blessing. What does it mean, that, or what does Scripture have to say about being blessed to be a blessing? And so a couple of questions as we begin this morning. And... Uh, the first one is, how many of us are grateful for all that Jesus has done and showing us his life and his hope? Just think about that. How many of us are genuinely grateful for that? Now, hopefully all of us. That's an easy one. Next one, how many of us hope that that same joy in life we experience in Christ is experienced by those who don't yet know Jesus? And again, I, I would hope most of us would say yes to that. But the next one, a little harder, how many of us have a regular practice of actively sharing the hope that we have with those that we hope one day experience it. And, and most people kind of drop off at that point. But we have this incredible hope. Most Christians are far more comfortable hoping those they love and know come to Christ. 
but actually helping them and, and walking with them to that place. Recent polling that was done by the group Barna Group and in courts co- with the Alpha organization had some interesting statistics. And it said that 80% of Christians said that the very best thing that could happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. Now, I don't know what's wrong with the other 20%, but um, 80% at least acknowledge that. Yet, almost 75% of Christians say they are reluctant to share their faith. They avoid spiritual conversations. They're afraid of appearing too religious or maybe opposing, imposing their ideas upon someone else. They, they don't want to be seen as too pushy. And, and some feel they wouldn't even know what to say if the opportunity arose anyways. What's amazing is 47% of millennials that were polled, this was just done a year or two ago, believe it is in fact wrong to share their faith and impose their worldview upon somebody else. Yet the same group, 80% of them said that it's the best possible thing that could happen to somebody. I mean, so, and these are polls of Christians. So Christians believe that the gospel is really good news, but they don't think anyone wants to hear it. It's like we are selling the most incredible product in the world and no one wants to, we think no one wants to buy it. So that was when they pulled Christians, but when they pulled non-Christians, there were some interesting results in the same study. They said that just kind of don't line up with the Christian view. 80% of non-Christians said that they would be open to talking to a friend about spiritual things. Four out of five. That's a massive amount of people who are curious and hungry about spiritual things. And again, they would talk to someone they have relationship with, a friend, where there was already an established relationship. They don't want to be preached at, but they are open to conversations about things specifically from those they know. And and of that 80%, 25% said that they would even be open to attending a Christian gathering with a friend if a friend invited them. And how many of you knew that? I mean, that's just a broad pull done across people. So what does this tell us? Well, we as Christians are a giant mess of contradictions. Um, We are convinced there's nothing better in the world than for someone to know Christ, yet we're very hesitant and sometimes downright resistant to sharing that hope with them. We are convinced that no one wants to talk about it, yet evidence shows the majority of people are very open to spiritual conversations with friends. Again, conversations not being preached at. If it's someone who has relationship with them, is sharing life with them, they know cares about them, is bringing that up in a conversation. There's a beautiful passage in the book of Romans, chapter 10, where Paul addresses this, one of my favorite parts of Scripture, where Paul is speaking about his, just coming out to speak about his deep longing that his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters would come to know Christ. And Paul says to them in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he said, goes on, but, but how can they call on him, being God, to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in this God if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about Jesus unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them unless they are sent? That is why the scriptures say, and he's quoting Isaiah here, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring the good news. Paul literally says, how beautiful are the feet of those, the the literal language is proclaim the gospel there. And that word for proclaim the gospel, the Greek word there is a word called evangelizo. You could probably guess what English word we get from that one. One of the most terrifying words in the English Christian dictionary. Evangelism. Few words have produced more guilt for Christians, maybe other than tithing or lust or, or maybe quiet time, than the word evangelism over the history of Christians. 
more shame and more guilt trips. And maybe, in fact, maybe as soon as I mention this series, you're already making plans for why you need to skip the next few weeks. Because if we're talking about this again, yeah, I don't need to hear that message. But I promise this isn't a series about shaming us. It's not a series about how we all need to be extroverts, how we all need to act like me. That's not what this is about. We're going to be looking at how we can be a blessing to those around us. And we've been talking a lot about living and loving like Jesus. And as I said last week, we're not going to stop talking about that. That we are called to follow the way of Jesus. To do the things that Jesus is called to do. And the simple reality is that Jesus has called us to love our neighbors. He's called us to love our coworkers, our family, and our friends, especially those who do not know him, and share with them the hope that we have in Christ. And that could involve standing on a soapbox and down at Pioneer Square with a PA system. I used to love doing this back in the day. It could involve carrying a giant sign outside Seahawks Stadium and preaching at every single person that walks by. We were just in Leavenworth a couple weeks ago as a staff team, and there was a guy there you know, with a PA system just screaming out as loud as he could. And I got such mad respect for people who do that. Or it could involve you know, knocking on every door in your zip code. And again, mad respect for anyone who does that. For those that have the boldness to go and, 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 and preach out in that way, and that's awesome. In fact, our own beloved introvert, Phil Wagner, if you're watching. Hi, Phil. Um, who recently just moved to California, he used to set up a booth down at Mill Creek Town Center and sometimes down at Pike Place Market, and he'd do magic tricks and just invite people to do the magic and then share the gospel with them. And I get mad respect. Others would use tracks, and there's a lot of people today who knock the use of Christian tracks as evangelism methods, but I know, I know of many, but there are literally millions who have come to Christ through this method that some would say, oh, that's old-fashioned, as they see the simple message of the gospel in a piece of paper that draws them to Christ. And while those methods can all be good as the Holy Spirit speaks, it could be those really bold, what some would say crazy methods, but it can also just involve learning your neighbor's name and sharing a meal with them. And that's kind of the part we're really going to be emphasizing over the next few weeks, so don't worry. We're not going to do a giant church-wide PA system down at Pike Place Market everyone's forced to go to. We're not going to do that. If you want to, that would be awesome. We can arrange it. Um, But Luke chapter 7, verse 34 says, Jesus came eating and drinking. That sounds like a lot of fun. We're going to talk a lot more about that in the coming weeks, but the point being, Jesus spent an incredible amount of time doing incredibly normal things. Jesus did not spend most of his time performing miracles and teaching publicly. He spent most of his time hanging out with people, sharing meals, sharing their homes with people, listening to people, asking lots and lots of questions, getting to know people. And we need to live in love like Jesus. And sometimes we can make it really complicated. But Jesus literally came eating and drinking, is what Scripture says. And over the coming weeks, I'm going to propose that that's a pretty good model to follow as we want to share the hope that we have in Christ. Evangelism doesn't have to be a guilt-inducing word, something that makes us run and hide. It's simply sharing the good news, taking the hope that we have and sharing it with those who don't know him. I love what Tim Keller has to say about this word evangelizo in his book, uh, Center Church. Fantastic books. He says this. He says, the Greek word evangelizo means to gospelize, to tell people the good news about what Jesus did. And in the book of Acts, literally every single person in the early church does it. Not only the apostles, but every Christian did evangelism. And they did so endlessly. Every Christian was expected to evangelize, to follow up, to nurture, and teach people the word. This happened relationally. Hear this. It happened relationally. One person bringing the gospel to another within the context of a relationship. 
In Michael Green's great book, Evangelism in the Early Church, also an incredible book, he, he conveys the conclusion of historians that early Christianity's explosive growth was in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries. That is, Christian lay people, not trained preachers and evangelists, in homes and wines, oh, sorry, carried on the mission of the church, not through formal preaching, but informal conversations. In homes, in wine shops, on walks and around market stalls. They did it naturally and enthusiastically. I love that. The early Christianity did not explode because Paul was so anointed. He was one guy. It wasn't because of the other apostles either. In fact, almost all the other apostles were dead except for John within 30 years of the death of Christ. Christianity exploded in the midst of incredible persecution because most Christians were so grateful for what they had in Christ They knew the true hope that was only found in him, so they obeyed Jesus' teachings, and they shared the hope they had with friends and family and neighbors. That was just a natural part of the early church. It was an expectation of every follower of Christ. It was not reserved for missionaries or apostles or paid missionaries or ministers. It was simply a way of life for those who called Jesus Lord. Now, when I was living in China, planting churches back in the day, it was a natural part of the life for the, all the Chinese or Christians that we met at that time, and that we worked with, and those we led to Christ. It's just, it happened naturally everywhere we went. In most of the places where there's a lot of persecution, it's just a very normal way for Christians to live, which is kind of counterintuitive if you think about that. That the less persecution there is in a society, the less people share the hope that they have. The easier it is, the less people do it. The less consequences, the less people do it. But where there is a cost to following Jesus, the church is more likely to take Jesus and his words very seriously. I heard a story years ago in China. There's a famous American uh, pastor who came to work with hundreds of underground church leaders in China. And they had this very secretive underground meeting. And while he was there, he said, you know, we in America, all the churches, we are praying that God would stop the persecution of the underground church. And one of the chief leaders in the midst of the meeting stood up and he told, he said, he said, please stop praying that prayer. Tell your American friends to stop praying that prayer. He said, it's the fact the persecution is the very thing that emboldens us and empowers us to follow the ways of God. If it weren't for the persecution, we might end up looking like your church. (laughs) The more comfortable we get, we recognize the more we take our focus off the main things and the more we put it on the, the less substantial things. The more we just get so focused on insignificant differences and then intentionally living and loving like Jesus. But this has been God's heart from the very beginning for followers of Christ. Remember, it's why he created humanity so we can experience life with God and with one another. Nothing matters more than that. Nothing is more central to our purpose in creation than that we experience the way God intended for it to be to us have fellowship with God and with one another as one family of God. And God lays it out so clearly from the very beginning in Scripture. In the opening of the Bible called The Beginnings, because that's actually what the book of Genesis is called. Genesis means The Beginnings. It tells the story of God creating Adam and Eve to be with God. It then tells how Adam and Eve turn away from God. And then the next few chapters, a story after story of the consequences of turning away from God and losing that fellowship. And it speaks of creation, and the fall, and then the flood, and the Tower of Babel. All of it, the the consequences of walking away and losing that fellowship with God. And then immediately after that, immediately after the Tower of Babel, it begins with the story of Abraham. Now again, 
the book of Genesis is written not as some detailed account of all of history. It only got as a, literally four events of all the things that happened. It only clips four of them, and it jumps over thousands of years. But in those things there, it's not a detailed history. But the reason that Genesis is written in all the Pentateuch, it's written to the Israelites as they're entering into the promised land after 400 years of slavery. While they were in slavery, the Israelites lost entirely their identity. They were Egyptian slaves. They didn't know who they were. They had lost their culture. They lost their history. They had no clue who they were as a people. And when God releases them from Egypt, he then has them wandering in the desert. A generation dies off. And as they enter into the promised land, he has Moses record these books. Why? To set up the identity of this is who you are and where you came from. This is what it means to be a child of God. And so in the book of beginnings, literally called beginnings, he begins that message in Genesis chapter 12 and says this. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. When you read Genesis, really any of the Pentateuch, but especially Genesis, everything you read, you should be asking two questions. Why is God telling this story of all the possible stories? Because he only hits on a few. He talks about four events and four people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, all of them get almost equal time. Isaac gets a little bit less. But why is he telling these stories? Of all the things he could share, you should be asking, why is he telling these stories? And second question to always ask, is how does this story shape the identity of the people of Israel? Why is he telling this story to them? How does it shape their identity? And right here, what he tells them is this is your identity as a people. I called you from the beginning, from the beginning. I created you to be a people whom I would bless and pour my blessing into so that you would be a blessing to the nations. You are blessed to be a blessing. He's telling Israel, I'm going to pour out my blessing upon you, and you are to be a blessing to the world. And the world will come to know me because of you, Israel. And when the Israelites forget this calling, things turn out disastrously for them. When they think that they're blessed because of their own efforts, or they're blessed because they're special, things go disastrously for them. God is telling them, you are blessed to be a blessing. You are my light to the world. It was the central job of God's children to be blessed, to be a blessing, to demonstrate and embody the good news of the true gospel to the world. And you see this beautiful, beautifully said in that psalm that Roger read for us this morning in Psalm 67. Check out this psalm. We don't know who wrote it, but it's a song that is supposed to be sung with stringed instruments. So this was a part of the worship music of the early, of, of the, definitely the early church, but going way back thousands of years. And here it says like this. May God be merciful and bless us. There it is. May God bless us. It comes right out of the Abrahamic covenant. May his face with, smile with favor upon us. Verse 2. May your ways, God, be known throughout the earth. You're saving power among people everywhere. How? It's going to be, they're saying, through the way that they, as God's people, are blessed and bless the world. Verse 3, may the nations praise you, O God. May all the nations praise you. Why? Because of what God is doing in the Israelites. Four, let the whole world sing for joy because you govern the nations with justice and guide people of the whole world, which is evident, again, through the Israelites. Five, may the nations praise you, O God. May all the nations praise you. Then the earth will yield its harvest, and God, our God, will richly bless us. 
Yes, God will bless us, and the people all over the world will fear him. And fear there is a reverent awe in the meaning there. Again, this was a song that they sang over and over and over again. And it says, God bless us, and the whole earth will know it of how good you are, God. That you have power to save all people everywhere. May the whole world praise you, for you are good. And again, the song finishes, and God will bless us, and people all over the world will know him. This has been the, the calling of the people of God from the very beginning. To take what they had, however little, however much, and bring glory to God to demonstrate his goodness to the nations and the peoples of the world. In short, we are blessed to be a blessing. Amen? Then we come to the time of Jesus, we're jumping over a lot of history, and over and over again, Jesus tells his followers that they are to live in such a way that people are drawn to Jesus by the way that they live and the way they love. One of the most famous times Jesus says this is during the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Just after giving the Beatitudes, you know, the blessed are the poor in spirit and all those other ones, Jesus tells them that, you know, you are the salt of the earth. And then he says this to them in verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We are blessed to be a blessing, not to keep it to ourselves, not to take our light and hide it under a bowl, but they are to be a light to the world, Jesus tells them, to to let the light of Christ shine through their life by their good deeds, the way that they love their neighbors. Sounds a lot like Living and loving like Jesus. Sounds a lot like Northview's mission statement of the last 20 years. That God's mandate for his children has not changed since the very, very beginning. It was established for the Israelites back in the very, very beginning. And it's the identity that Jesus is reestablishing for his people when he comes and incarnates himself here on earth. The message doesn't change. In fact, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 22. The religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus to find an excuse to kill him. And one of them, all smart, comes to him to try and trap Jesus and says this in 22.35. He says, it says, one of the Pharisees, an expert religious law, tried to trap Jesus with this question. 36. Teacher, which is the most important commandment of the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. 39, a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So these are the two greatest commandments that Jesus says. Everything is based on these. He says everything hangs on these. That yes, we must love God, obviously. But he says equally important. The Greek is very clear there. Equally of the same importance, it says. Just like the first, of equal importance, you must love your neighbors. They are blessed with a fellowship with God, and now they must be a blessing to the world. They are blessed to be a blessing. The second command is not secondary importance. It is secondary only because it flows out of the first. When you look at the original language, it is just as important, but it flows from the first, so it is secondary. It's the natural response to being loved by God and to loving Him is for us to love our neighbors. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus repeats the same command, or it's repeated again in that passage when another expert in religious law comes to Jesus 
And he's trying to puff himself up and justify his actions. And he says, Jesus, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds in Luke chapter 10, verse 26, and says, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And this law, he just quotes it from memory. And he says, the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The expert of the law feels pretty good about himself at this point. This great rabbi is acknowledging his wisdom. And so he, to, to even more arrogance, he kind of, he takes the next level. He says that in verse 29, it says, the man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and just who is my neighbor? Knowing that he's knocked it out of the park. And he's been confident. He knows the law. He can quote it. And he knows he's been caring for his family. So he says, who is my neighbor? And then he instantly has regret. As Jesus tells this pious man that he's got it all wrong. And this is where Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan. And he blows up his pride. As the expert of the law was so confident that look at the way I follow the law and know the law and care for my family. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's good, yes. But your neighbor isn't just those you want to love. Your neighbor are those you find repugnant and vile, those you consider the enemy. Your neighbor, using the most extreme of stories, is the one you will cross the road to the other side of the road to avoid. That is your neighbor. Does you want to hear eternal life? Go love that neighbor, the one you don't want to be around. Ouch. I mean, is there anyone in our lives probably not in our lives, around our lives, in this area who we would cross to the other side of the road to avoid. Jesus says, that's your neighbor. Jesus is really good at revealing our hearts, cutting right to the core. And So many times I've felt so justified in the ways that I've been living my life over the years. And sometimes he just gently nudges me, and other times it's just getting smacked over the head with a sledgehammer. Um, but there's no possible way to read the New Testament honestly, like actually reading it in its context, not just jumping over verses, without seeing the constant expectation of Christ that followers of Jesus are actively engaging the world with the good news of, gospel, of the gospel, sharing the hope they have with others, specifically with those who don't know Jesus or have walked away. I was deeply confronted by this about 12 years ago. As I, as I shared last week, my first number of years, I left, I left America when I was 17, and my first number of years in missions was really focused on church planting and evangelism. That's where I spent most of my time doing, and saw incredible fruit doing that. But my, mis- my ministry over the years moved to focus as we set up a Bible school. My, um, my focus moved towards training pastors and missionaries for them to go reach the lost. And I, my job is basically uh, studying and teaching the Bible and training missionaries and pastors and investing in those who are the ones out investing in the lost. And I did that for a number of years until one day I had the great opportunity to be mentored by one of the greatest saints of modern missions. His name's Floyd McClung. Steve would often use his book, The Father Heart of God, in in, in mentoring sessions. But um, in that meeting, Floyd asked a very awkward question to ask of a missionary. It should seem like an obvious one. He said, write down the names of the people you have regular contact with who don't know Jesus. Simple question. I, as a, at that point, a 15-year missionary or something like that, couldn't think of a single name. That had regular contact with. There are people I'd go visit and stuff, but no one I had regular contact with. I just thought of one, I'll talk about him later, but uh, our landlord that we would see every three months when he came to collect the rent. That was the only guy I could think of, the name of a person that I had regular contact with. I had surrounded myself in a Christian bubble. As a missionary, my entire world was other believers. 
and I quickly found myself making all kinds of excuses in that time. And, and I had some really good excuses, I'll be honest. I mean, um, I remember at one point, I'm like, no, I refuse to be ashamed. I refuse to feel guilty over this. I mean, uh, my life is spent mentoring and teaching and training missionaries and pastors and, and le- Christian leaders, and I'm training them to do all that stuff. That's my job. But then later that week, I just couldn't get out of my head. And later in that week, I've, I've shared this story before where I was sitting in a meeting and Floyd was teaching out of Luke chapter 5, the story of Jesus having a meal with Matthew, the tax collector, and as he went to his house eating with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and, and the alcoholics. And at that meeting, it says in Luke chapter 5, Jesus answered them when the religious leaders come in and say, what are you doing? And he says, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. And that's when I've shared it before, the Lord just gave me this immediate picture in my mind of a doctor's office with a sign on the door that said, healthy patients only. Right? Where... I realized my entire practice was healthy patients. And I'm like justifying, well, they're not all healthy. Pastors are really broken. Missionaries are some of the most broken, messed up people you'll ever meet. Chief example right here. But I instantly recognized I could no longer justify it. Of not spending time with those who didn't know Jesus. I had to rearrange my schedule. I had to create space for neighbors who didn't know the Lord. And in my case, my neighbors were literally across the street from our home, it was a township with a massive number of gangsters and, and violent criminals in that place, amongst many wonderful people that were doing great, but that's where I began to spend a lot of my time. Every week, I'd take at least a couple uh, solid slots and go spend time out there with, with those that I was most afraid of. That was the best picture of the Samaritans I could think of, was those literally was horrifically violent gangsterism and, and prostitutes and others. And I'm like, I'm going to go hang out with those that I literally walk across the street for, because those are the people I was afraid of. Because when I held my life up, we talked about this last week, when I talked about we want to hold up the life of Jesus, and wherever we're out of line, my life needs to change, right? And when I did that in this area, I realized that was the example of Jesus, and I was out of alignment. I mean, I had to change. I was avoiding those who didn't know Jesus, and I was justifying with really good spiritual answers just how busy we were. And now the reality is, since moving back to America and becoming a professional Christian, where I'm literally paid to pastor other believers, it's so easy to get sucked back into that Christian bubble again. It's so easily to, to just have my schedule filled up with hanging out with other Christians and pastoring and caring and shepherding and, and teaching and studying and training that I don't actually get much time with those who don't know Jesus. And now I have to be more intentional than ever to put time in my schedule to be with those and actually put it into my schedule, time to spend with neighbors who don't know him and time to spend with those I've met who are seeking out truth and, and struggling and hurting in that way. I have to pursue them and learn about their lives and share meals with them and seek the Lord for opportunities to be light in the darkness because I am called, I am blessed to be a blessing. All of us are. From the very beginning, God chose us and he called us for this. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to talk really practically about ways for us to do this, just really practical examples. I'm going to be pulling from a book that you have out for sale in the the lobby. It's just sitting there. We bought a bunch to get a cheap price on it, but it's called BLESS, B-L-E-S-S, an acronym we're looking at. And it stands for five kind of key aspects we'll be kind of highlighting over the next few weeks. But one is B, begin with prayer. L of BLESS is listen. E, E is eat. S is serve. And S is, the second S is going to be share a story. And we're going to break this down over the coming weeks of, as we look at how do we live in love like Jesus in really practical ways with neighbors and, and family and co-workers. And as we're going to see, so much of it is following Jesus' example of serving others and sharing with others and doing life with others, especially around a meal. We are blessed to be a blessing. 
Even if you don't think you are living out of great excess, you're like, well, I'm not that blessed. If you have the hope of Christ, we are blessed. And we are called to actively take the hope of Christ within us and that has blessed us with and share it with those who do not know Christ. To take the life and love of Christ wherever we go and demonstrate it to the world around us. That's the calling upon all who follow Jesus. You know, this past week I was listening to a, a message by Francis Chan. He's often a challenging man. And uh, he told the story of where he was at a conference a while back and at this conference was this major nationally known pastor, and the pastor was sharing about these massive uh, Christmas outreach musicals that they did every year at their church. Huge ones that had hundreds of volunteers that took months and months of planning, and the average, with hundreds of volunteers would have to give 10 to 15 hours of their week for months and months in advance. And they'd spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on this huge production that would go for a couple nights, and, and they'd have bunches of unbelievers that would come and take part and, and listen to the message. And Francis said afterwards, he goes, I went up to the pastor and I asked him. And first I said, you know, that seems like a really great event. I'm really glad you guys are able to do that. But he said, if there's hundreds of volunteers spending 10 to 15 hours a week for months of rehearsals, he said, just what would happen if those hundreds of volunteers spent just a fraction of that time actually getting to know their neighbors, sharing meals with them, mowing their lawns, serving them, and sharing the gospel? How much more fruit do you think would happen from those relationships than just one gigantic massive event where all the energy goes into? And it would be free. And you'd be empowering your people and they'd be engaging with the lost and their neighbors. He says the, past, the pastor's answer amazed him. The pastor said, obviously, that's better. That's so much better. He said, but people are unwilling to do it. Francis was saying that Imagine what could be accomplished if the body was as focused on being Jesus to our neighbors with just as much diligence as preparing for some giant large musical. Not that musicals and events are bad. We, do, we, don't, we don't quite have that level of musical here, but we do some really cool stuff here, and, we, and we'll keep doing that as a place to invite people to. But I'll be honest, I was quite discouraged when I heard this story because that's almost an identical message that I heard when I moved here from overseas a couple years ago. When I arrived here a couple years ago, I did what I do as a missionary whenever I arrive in a new land, and I used to travel quite a bit and move quite a bit as a missionary, and anytime I go to a new place, I try and meet with as many people who are doing similar stuff to what I want to do in the area and find out what's been fruitful, where is God moving, what kind of stuff is God doing in this area, and so I met with so many pastors around the whole Puget Sound area. I spread out all around trying to find out what are people doing that's effectively reaching the lost in this area, and this, this area where people say that is a, is a church graveyard. What, is, what are people doing that's bearing fruit? And I met with so many pastors, and sadly, the vast majority basically shared humility and just said, we're not seeing any fruit. It's hard ground right now. But there were some who were having great success, and so I started peppering those guys with bunches of questions, and had a lot of those follow-up meetings, and pretty much everyone, as I asked, what's happening? What are you doing? What's effective? Pretty much all of them proceeded to explain to me all the efforts they make to create an optimal environment to invite non-Christians to on a Sunday morning. That was the vast majority of everyone's answers. It was pretty much everything I was reading in the books I was reading as well, coming back to America about you know, reaching the lost and, and seeing people come to Christ. It was really, really, everything's about that Sunday morning or, or a revival service or something else. Put all your energy there. This outreach pri strategy they described primarily is invite people to a Sunday service or a revival service. Let the professionals do the heavy lifting. You, you invite them and we'll reach them. 
And I heard that, and I, and I understand it, but I responded to it in each of these cases and said, you know, I really struggle with this approach as the primary model, the primary way of reaching the lost. I told them that, you know, I, I struggled because I felt that the Lord was telling me when I was back in South Africa, we were looking at moving to America to pastor, that when we move, I mean, our job is to work with the church, to empower the church according to what Scripture says, to be able to empower the body to go out and reach the world, that, that they would be the body, that my job is, 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 is to empower and to equip and train the body to be ministers and priests, that we go out where we are and meet people where they're at as we increasingly actually live in love like Jesus, not just give empty words, but we demonstrate the gospel, demonstrate embody Jesus to the world, that as we do that, people will see Jesus at work in their midst, and they will turn to him. And, and yes, sometimes to invite them to a building, that's a great thing to do. And, co- and with that, it's a great thing to be able to do. But we're supposed to be sharing meals with our neighbors and loving on them and pouring into them. And as I shared this, in each circumstance, I had these wonderful, deep lovers of Jesus tell me, good luck with that. They said, that approach maybe works well in South Africa, but up here in the Seattle area, people don't do that. They don't go meet with neighbors. They don't talk to their coworkers. They're unwilling to do that. That's why we focus on events. I'm sharing this with, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say this because maybe we are unwilling. Um, But I'm just like, that's not what the Bible says. Right? And yes, events are wonderful. And we have, historically, Northview has done so many beautiful things that we do to gather the community. And we want this to be a safe place to invite our friends because for some people, it is, it is so much easier and, and, and a less of a, a stretch to invite someone to join us, to sit with us in, in, in a church. And that's a beautiful thing to be able to invite someone to, to invite them to a place. And often in a church like this, as we're loving Jesus, you invite a stranger in and they can experience love in a way they've never experienced before. The, the Spirit is just manifest and they can experience it. And there's so many beautiful things that can happen by inviting people with us into this building and into this body. Absolutely, don't stop doing it. I encourage people to keep inviting those who don't know Jesus in this body. We want this to be a safe place for those who don't know Jesus to come and encounter him. Absolutely, absolutely. We're going to keep holding events and doing those kinds of things. Absolutely. But the primary weight is upon us as the body as we leave these walls and we seek to live in love like Jesus outside this building, among our neighbors, among friends and family and co-workers. To meet people where they are, because the truth is most people will be unwilling to ever step foot in this building. But if we have relationship with them, they will listen to us as we love on them, and share with them, and do life with them, and eat meals with them. The statistics show they're very curious and interested. So yes, keep inviting. Yes, we'll keep doing stuff, but even more so, we must obey. We are blessed to be a blessing. We must reach out to our neighbors. We must meet people where they are with the love of Christ as followers of Jesus. We must be the light of Christ to the world. Because again, most people won't come to this building. It was amazing when we did my father's funeral a few months back. We had some of our neighbors and friends of my father come who have never been stepped foot in a church in their entire lives, who came and were seated right here in this building and said, man, I preached the gospel with my whole heart. Because that might be the only time in their lives they might actually step foot into a building like this. But the rest of the gospel is as we live next to them and try to love on them. We must increasingly live in love like Jesus among those who don't know him. So church, do we see that as our calling? Essential to our calling as believers to love God and to love our neighbor of equal importance. 
of equal importance, our worship of God, is they're taking that love and pouring it into those who don't know Him. Or do we see it something as only those extroverts that are gifted with evangelism? That's easy for you, James. You're an extrovert. Or for those crazy introverts who are willing to set up a magic booth in Pike Place Market. Um, yeah, love you, Phil. Uh, as we wrap up this morning, I want to ask us the same question that Floyd McClung asked me a number of years ago. Who are the people in your sphere of influence who you have regular contact with who don't know Jesus? A couple months ago, we handed out cards with five spaces for names on them. Some of you filled it out, some of you didn't. But who are the people that we have regular contact with right now in our sphere of influence who don't know Jesus? And homework for this week. Pick one. Not all five, pick one. Pick one that you have influence. Prayerfully decide who that is. If you've never done it before, then just find one. Pick one. If it, a person who's not currently walking with the Lord. Pick one that you will approach to share a meal with or a coffee with or go mow their lawn or, or an extended chat. It could be a neighbor, a family member, a friend, a co-worker, but just someone you're like, Lord, show me who, a person that I can pour into this. Maybe it's a phone call, maybe it's just a text. But pick one and begin praying with great intentionality. Ask the Lord to op open up an opportunity to connect with them, to reach out. I do just want to say this. If, if you're in, there's some people I know that are just in survival mode right now. And right now, even just that sounds overwhelming. If you're in that place, I'm not trying to add any burden. Just pray. Right now, if you're at that place that can barely function, just pray. Increasingly pray. But we're going to be going into more specifics in the, in the coming weeks of what that looks like. And there's really practical ways to do that. But identify who that person is and lean into in prayer this week for them. Seriously, just lean in in prayer. And if you struggle to even come up with one name, awesome. Chance to lean in even more to the Lord. And I'd encourage you to really seek Him. And then this week, go on prayer walks around your, your house. Specifically, early evening, while people are outside, just go slow prayer walks. you got a dog, go walk the dog. If you don't, just go walk around very slowly and wave to a lot of people. Say hi to some people and learn some people's names that literally live right next to you. And pick one. Ask the Lord to lead you to somebody. Say hi to people. Get to know some people. Ask the Holy Spirit to posture your heart towards someone that's in your sphere of influence or around you. I recognize it can be a bit intimidating, and therefore, ask the Lord what that is. And, and make sure to celebrate even the tiniest of victories, which could just be for some of us just willing, just a head nod to a neighbor as we walk by. For some of us, that would be a major victory. Just acknowledging the existence of another human being that we don't currently know the name of, right? Especially if it's a neighbor that's been there that awkward period. It's been like at least a year and you still don't know their name and now you can't ask their name because you feel really bad that you don't know that neighbor or maybe it's not been a year, maybe it's been five years or 10 years and you still don't know the neighbor's name and you feel even more awkward about it, right? Because they're very cool. There's websites that are out there that'll tell you the names of all your neighbors. Um, that you, you can just pretend that you know it in advance and just hope that it's still them and no one else moved in and you didn't notice it. Um, but celebrate the tiny victories, the head nods, the, the wave and ask the Lord, how can I love my neighbor or coworker or family member? This week is just kind of the prep work for where we're going with the series. How can I demonstrate the love and life of Jesus to those around me? How can I be a blessing? Amen? Let's not just hope that people experience life in Jesus. Let's actually begin moving towards helping them experience life in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you, Lord, that it's not on our shoulders. It's you, Holy Spirit. 
And that you are the one who found us. You say in Ephesians that you found us when we were dead in our trespasses. And you, it says in Ephesians 2, you made us alive. Not by any of our own effort, but because you love us so much. You pursued us and you brought us from death to life. And no more can we revive a dead body than we can see someone of our own power come to Christ and turn to you. And so we lean into you, Holy Spirit. So do a work in our hearts to empower us to get beyond ourselves, beyond our comfort zones, to move in loving those who are around us, Lord. And Father, may you anoint our, our head nods. We anoint our waves, our handshakes, our conversations. We prepare our hearts to pursue deeper relationship with those who don't know you, with our neighbors and friends and coworkers. We begin to posture our heart outward that we are called to be blessed, to be a blessing, to take what you've implanted and instilled within us and give it out and pour it to the world around us. Jesus, we want to increasingly live in love like you. We want to hold up your example and become more like that. Stretch us, Lord, to see you more clearly, to love you more deeply, and to share that love with the world. Amen.